0: America, we need to talk. We've grown apart these last few years. It's not you, it's Mississippi. It's Mississippi. Pew Research reports that over the past seven years, Americans have increasingly felt that their political opposites are stupider, more dishonest, more immoral, and lazier. And the simple fact is, their rights regardless of what side they're on i'm playing both sides so that i always come out on top and in light of this increasing political acrimony among americans some have begun to think it was good while it lasted but it's time to call it quits on this whole union thing For example, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has declared a crisis at the border and says that Texas has a right to self-defense and is going to take over immigration duties from the U.S. government and stop the U.S. government from interfering. And many politicians agree, like Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who triggered a firestorm of criticism by repeatedly demanding a national divorce in which Red America and Blue America go their separate ways. And we should listen to Congressperson Greene because she knows from experience what it means when someone decides they can't stand you anymore and unceremoniously leaves you. But while Green was pilloried on all sides for her call for splitting up the union, a March 2023 poll suggests that around one-fifth of the population, or 66 million Americans, if you can extrapolate from that, are amenable to a national divorce. Looks like the 250-year itch is real. And even soon to be also ran, Nikki Haley is on tape claiming the Constitution allows states to secede. Do you believe that the states of the United States have the right to secede from the union? I think that they do. I mean, the Constitution says that. And admittedly, these numbers are alarming, though it's unclear to what extent it reflects a sincere desire to break up the union as opposed to a way to register their displeasure that the person you didn't vote for became president. Uh, but in 2009, Governor of Texas and King of Failing Upwards, Rick Perry, jokingly suggested his state would consider secession after the election of Barack Obama. But this isn't just a red state thing. In 2017, a poll found that 32% of California voters supported seceding from the U.S. following the election of Donald Trump, up from 20% in 2014. And again, after Joe Biden was elected, Texas is once again partying like it's 1861 by refusing to accept election results and threatening secession. Regardless, what was once unthinkable, the breakup of the United States has become a real issue we can no longer treat as a mere hypothetical. Yeah, that it. South America, take it away. So, today, Legal Eaglets, let's talk about what would happen if states opted to formally leave the Union and whether that's legally possible. Now, typically, it's a mistake to treat cranks with any kind of serious inquiry. After all, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not exactly what one would call a constitutional scholar. But her proposal is not without precedent. After all, the United States of America was born out of secession. And ever since the colonists declared themselves an independent nation, threats to leave the Union have long been made by various constituents of the US, but rarely acted on. And in fact, the first serious threat of secession came not from the Deep South, but from New England. In 1814, New England delegates attended the Hartford Convention to protest President James Madison's mercantile policies and the War of 1812, with more extreme delegates making an unsuccessful push to leave the Union. And then, and stop me if you've heard this one already, after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, 11 Southern US states broke off from the Republic to form the Confederate States of America, triggering a bloody four-year Civil War. And of course, despite modern attempts by some to claim the Confederacy was fighting for states' rights, not slavery, we know that that's pretty much false. How do we know? Well, for one, the majority of the states explicitly wrote in their declarations of secession that the reason they seceded was to preserve slavery and prevent political equality between whites and blacks. But you know, sometimes people are only textualists when it's convenient. But even cities have gotten on the secession bandwagon, or in this case, perhaps the secession yacht. Martha's Vineyard, along with Nantucket, actually voted to secede from Massachusetts. Yes, in 1977, the Martha's Vineyard selectmen voted 10 to 2 for secession to protest a redistricting plan that would reduce their representation in the state legislature. Uh, on an even smaller level some americans have simply proclaimed their property to be an independent micronation for example in 1998 kevin baugh declared his 11.3 acre property in the nevada desert to be the republic of Melosia. and since 1998 president baugh has ruled his micronation as a benevolent dictator i am president kevin baugh of the republic of Melosia, a tiny self-declared country within nevada that's within the united states we have everything that a nation should have Bank, Stamps, and the Post Office. To date, no country has recognized the legitimacy of this micronation, whose currency is tied to the price of cookie dough. Now, obviously, if you're gonna try and secede from the union, you're gonna need a good lawyer, but if you want a great lawyer, my firm, the Eagle team can help. If you've suffered a data breach, especially if you've gotten a data breach letter or were involved in a car crash or have dealt with sexual harassment, we can represent you or help find you the right attorney who can. It's so important to talk to a lawyer right away so you can get the best representation and find out all of what your options are. Just click on the link in the description for a free consultation with my team because you don't just need a legal team, you need the Eagle team. Click on the link below. So let's jump right into it. Does the constitution provide a right to unilaterally secede from the union? Well, to give everyone's favorite answer, it depends, no, actually, no. Uh, States and localities have zero constitutional right to declare themselves independent and break away from the United States. Any votes to secede unilaterally is just political virtue signaling and uh, with zero legal effect. And yet the quote constitutional right to secede is a myth that refuses to die, but for really interesting reasons. Now, no state has bought into this mythical right to secede more than the Lone Star State. In fact, Texans love to repeat the legend that Texas, as a condition to joining the US, negotiated an annexation treaty, which grants them the unique right to unilaterally secede from the Union and once again become the Republic of Texas. But you might be surprised to learn that the terms of the Texas annexation contain no such provision. But Texas won't be cowed by your big city fact-checking and literacy. Uh, you know, as a result, these state's conservative leaders continue to falsely proclaim a right to secede. In June of 2022, Texas Republicans were once again whistling Dixie by adding to its party platform that Texas retains the right to secede from the United States, declaring a right to nullify the federal laws they don't like under the 10th Amendment, and urging the Texas legislature to pass a referendum to determine whether or not the state of Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation. And in March of 2023, Texas State Representative Brian Slayton introduced a bill to put said referendum on the November 2023 ballot. And just in time for the 2024 election, the Texas Supreme Court declined to take up a case from a conservative group that wanted to add Texas secession to this year's presidential primary ballot. But that raises the question, on what legal grounds do some Texans claim the state has a right to secede? Well, according to Daniel Miller, the president of the pro-secession Texas nationalist movement, Texas has an implied right to secede because the Constitution doesn't say it can't. Uh, Article 1, Section 10 of the US Constitution lists everything states are forbidden from doing. Guess what's not in there? Withdrawing. (laughs) In addition, Miller claims that the 10th Amendment, which says that the federal government only has power spelled out in the Constitution or not delegated by the states, means that states can choose to leave. Now, this argument isn't completely insane. There is a canon of construction that allows you to interpret contracts or statutes uh, by what is included. Specifically, it's uh, based on the Latin phrase as justum generis, which means the company it keeps. If you create a list of things and something is not included in that list, then you can assume that it was not meant to be included in that list. That being said, the argument is also similar to the one used in the movie Airbud. Bud. Uh, basically, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't secede from the United States or that a dog can't play basketball. But you won't find anything in there that says a dog can't play. He's right. Ain't no rules that the dog can't play basketball. So I wouldn't necessarily hang my hat on that argument. Most likely Airbud would be able to secede before Texas. Especially because legal scholars and constitutional experts seem to overwhelmingly agree that the U.S. Constitution does not allow for secession. For example, Stanford Levison, who is a law professor at the University of Texas, Austin, said that, quote, almost no lawyer would take that argument seriously. I do believe it is viewed as a closed question. And courts that have weighed in on the issues of secession have always shot them down. In 2010, Alaska's Supreme Court ruled that secession was illegal, and thus an initiative putting the question to a vote could not be placed on the ballot. So any effort to put a matter on the ballot in Texas would likely not be constitutional either. Even the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who followed a strict form of constitutional interpretation, dubbed originalism, said that there's no legal basis for secession. And we learned Scalia's views on this matter in a quite unusual way. Back in 2006, Legally-minded screenwriter Daniel Turkowitz wrote a letter to all nine Supreme Court justices for advice on a farcical script he was writing in which Maine secedes from the U.S. and joins Canada, leading to a climactic showdown at the Supreme Court. Scalia was the only justice to provide a substantive response to Turkowitz, and the late justice was unequivocal. Quote, To begin with, the answer is clear. If there was any constitutional issue resolved by the Civil War, it is that there is no right to secede. Hence, in the Pledge of Allegiance, One Nation Indivisible. The justice also explained why a secession case would never end up before the Supreme Court. Quote, I find it difficult to envision who the parties to this lawsuit might be. Is the state suing the United States for a declaratory judgment? But the United States cannot be sued without its consent, and it has not consented to this sort of suit. I am sure that Poetic License can overcome all that, but you do not need legal advice for that. Good luck with your screenplay. And although the Supreme Court has never heard a direct secession case, it did address the question indirectly in 1869. And once again, it involves Texas. The Supreme Court case of Texas versus White centered on the cash-strapped state selling U.S. Treasury bonds to help finance its war with the Union. A brokerage firm purchased some of these bonds and then resold them to investors. And after the South's defeat, the Union-supported Reconstruction Government of Texas filed suit against the brokerage firm directly with the Supreme Court, as the Constitution confers original jurisdiction to the top court for cases in which a state is a party. And Texas argued that the rebel government had illegally sold these bonds and the state was therefore entitled for their return and or repayment. The brokerage firm argued that these sales were legal and it had no duty to repay Texas. And in a five to three ruling, the Supreme Court ruled that the Confederate state's sale was illegal because Texas's secession itself was illegal. And as a matter of law, it never happened. Writing for the majority of the court, Chief Justice and secret Grizzly Bear Salmon Chase, who once famously graced the face of the now defunct $10,000 bill, declared, quote, the union between Texas and the other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through the consent of the states. So the Supreme Court has spoken. There are only two paths to secession, revolution, or a consensual disillusion. Now, before you go thinking that declaring war against the United States is just this one weird trick that allows you to secede, or uh, governments hate it because it's so successful, I should note that waging war against the government is not legal, uh, is what we lawyer types would call treason, a crime that is punishable by death. Uh, Hashtag not legal advice, don't commit treason. Uh, Also, seceding by force, uh, even unsuccessfully, or especially unsuccessfully, will typically result in a high body count. And during the Civil War, about 620,000 people, or 2% of the nation's total population, were killed. So unless you're jazzing to murder uh, thousands, if not millions, of your friends and neighbors, uh, spend decades in prison for sedition, or get executed for treason, revolution is probably not the ideal secession path. In fairness, that would be the most Texas thing that you could do. Uh, but there is one way to secede without murdering a whole bunch of people the states and the federal government consent to your secession now of course some states already act like their own independent nations and have the wealth to back that up Uh, if california and texas were their own countries they would be the fifth and tenth largest economies in the world by gdp respectively and if one state leaves it's easy to imagine the domino effect of mass exodus of red and or blue states So what would a consensual breakup between one or more states look like? Well, in a December 2022 article for the New Republic, Bryn Tannehill, a former Naval aviator and a senior defense analyst, gamed out what a divided United States of America might actually look like. In the piece, Tannehill, who outlined scenarios for what she referred to as a soft secession and hard secession, Uh, which he described as akin to a separation versus a messy divorce, respectively. In Tannehill's view, a soft secession could look like the 56-nation British Commonwealth, where nations like New Zealand, Canada, and Australia technically owe allegiance to the crown, but in practice, they're all their own sovereign nations, and the monarch's role is entirely ceremonial. Uh, The US doesn't have to swear allegiance to the crown because we're dope and we do dope things. But she also cited as an example the Kurds in Northern Iraq, and that while technically part of Iraq, the Iraqi government exercises little control and the Kurds have their own armed forces that cooperate in anti-terror operations against ISIS. Uh, Though that hasn't exactly worked out especially well for the Kurds historically. But the idea of a soft secession has its supporters on the conservative, albeit never Trump side of the aisle, like former National Review columnist David French, French argued that uh, different states and different regions should be empowered to go about American life in a radically different way without federal intervention. So in practice, this would look like a beefed up version of federalism, which French describes as tolerance through self-governance and community autonomy. In the system, more power would be delegated to the states, while the federal government takes a hands-off approach to let the laboratories of democracy chart their own paths. So in theory, this type of soft secession would have the benefit of preserving the Union and America's global power in a troubled world, while leaving open the possibility of reconciliation. But that would also require Americans tolerating policies without a federal floor of rights and or protections that many would find detestable and unacceptable, including dissenting citizens within said states. But Tannehill argues that a hard secession is a more dangerous proposition. Quote, this would involve a clean break, no more ostensible allegiance to a government in Washington, simply regions breaking off and forming their own countries based on common culture, religion, ethnicity, and regional identity. According to Tanhill, a hard secession could take many forms. It could be like the outcome of the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, which triggered an economic collapse and a huge decrease in life expectancy, not to mention the matter of nuclear materials being scattered across successor states. Uh, Tanhill also cites to the fall of Yugoslavia in the 90s, which resulted in a decade of civil war and genocide. Uh, or it could be like Taiwan and China, a decades-long, cold-armed standoff. But apart from the legality or illegality of the whole situation, a national divorce, even a consensual one, would be an absolute bureaucratic nightmare with a ton of unanswered questions. Like how would the national debt be divided? What happens to all the money paid into federal programs like Social Security and Medicare for those leaving the US? What do we do with federal assets like the gold at Fort Knox or the US military bases? And for that matter, what happens to the US military itself and the nukes? uh, Dibs on the nukes. Um, Yeah, I'm sure this will work out just fine. In short, yes, Theoretically, you could break up the United States through mutual consent, but only at great personal economic and political costs. There are just so many complicated issues to resolve, even with a mutual separation, not to mention that America's standing in the world would immediately and permanently be diminished. And even if the initial separation were peaceful, which I kind of doubt, uh, there would be years of disputes from trade and redrawing borders. And as history has shown regarding boundary disputes, uh, there's no guarantee that we wouldn't break out into an all out bloody second civil war. So I know we've all been fussing and feuding, but let's just take a breath and remember, as Americans, we have more in common than what divides us and find a way to work through our issues together, at least until the kids go to college. And it looks like a frightening number of states are going along with the plan to give the middle finger to the federal government. That didn't work out so well last time. So Marjorie, stop trying to make secession happen. It's not going to happen. Instead, let's just all take a breath and remember, as Americans, we have more in common than divides us and find a way to work through our issues together, at least until the kids go to college. And if you're looking to send your kids to college, you'll probably need to find ways to manage your finances and save money. Luckily, today's sponsor, Rocket Money, can help. For reasons that I don't understand, Mint is shutting down, and Rocket Money is one of my favorite Mint replacements to keep track of all of my expenses, and it's better in so many ways. Now, recently, I had a problem trying to get a handle on all my subscriptions. Between my personal and professional subscriptions, I was paying out almost $20,000 per year. Yes, being a real lawyer and also a YouTuber turns out is extremely expensive. But I hadn't been paying too much attention to what I was subscribed to and I couldn't believe once I started to track all my monthly expenses, how much money was going out in small amounts every month. But Rocket Money is an all-in-one finance platform that helps you save more and spend less. Rocket Money allows you to manage subscriptions, lower bills, build a custom budget, and grow your savings all in one place. I'm using Rocket Money to help me cancel all the subscriptions I wasn't using for apps I hadn't even watched shows on for months that I no longer needed now that Succession and Game of Thrones are over. But Rocket Money alerts you of important changes that impact your score and offers you insights on ways to improve it. It told me that a service increased their price by hundred dollars per year. I'll have to take a look at that. And their budget setting feature is great too. I can automatically monitor my spending, by category, get notifications when I've exceeded my budgets and visualize my spend to earn ratio by month, quarter or year. Plus Rocket Money can help you keep track of your credit and net worth. So once you canceled all those old subscriptions, you can watch the line go up. It lets me keep track of my whole financial picture, including cash, debts, investments, retirement accounts, collectible items, and more. Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. So to save more and spend less, join the over 5 million members using Rocket Money today. Go to rocketmoney.com legal eagle or click on the link in the description to get started for free. You can also unlock even more features with premium. Again, just click on the link that's on screen right now or down below to get started for free. And after that, click on this link over oh, here for more legal legal in front of the Supreme Court at you, some point. English. But SCOTUS may decide this sooner rather than later, and that's good news for some and bad news for others. Now, Donald Trump basically says that the Constitution gave him absolute power to do whatever he wanted as president and without criminal prosecution. Then I have an article too where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. And former president Trump has asked an appeals court to dismiss one of the criminal indictments against him because of this alleged presidential immunity. But special counsel, Jack Smith has now answered Trump's claim with a petition for certiorari that might as well be entitled. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And Smith doesn't want to waste any time. He wants the Supreme court to decide this issue without waiting around for an appellate decision. So can Trump be tried, convicted, and punished for acts he committed while president, or is he absolutely immune from federal prosecutions for these alleged crimes? And what is the Supreme Court going to do about it? Now, on August 1st, 2023, a federal grand jury in Washington, DC, indicted Donald Trump on four counts of attempting to interfere in the 2020 election. The indictment alleges that while Trump was still president, he participated in a conspiracy to defraud the United States, that he corruptly obstructed the certification of the presidential election results on January 6th, 2021, and that he conspired with other people to do the same and that he violated one or more person's constitutional rights to vote and have their vote counted. Now, federal district court judge Tanya Chutkin scheduled the trial to begin on March 4th, 2024, but Trump recently filed a motion to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that he has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for acts taken within the outer perimeter of his official responsibilities, and that the indictment's allegations all fall within that scope. Trump also argued the double jeopardy principles and the impeachment clause barred his prosecution. Smith opposed Trump's motion on the grounds that a president does not have absolute immunity from federal criminal prosecution. The district court denied Trump's immunity claim and rejected the impeachment clause argument. Trump filed a notice of appeal to the DC circuit and moved for stay of all proceedings in the district court while his appeal was pending. And under federal law and Supreme Court precedent, an appeal suspends trial proceedings, specifically anything, quote, involved in the appeal. So I think in an abundance of caution, Judge Chutkin has now halted most aspects of the case, although we don't know exactly how much of the case is halted and for how long. Trump's appeal on the immunity issue is an interlocutory appeal. An interlocutory appeal is an appeal uh, to the court of appeals before a conviction or a sentence. And federal procedure states, quote, the filing of a notice of appeal confers jurisdiction on the courts of appeal and divests the district court of its control over those aspects of the case involved in the appeal. So consequently, Judge Chukin's order pauses any further proceedings that would move the case towards trial or impose additional burdens of litigation on defendant. However, her order is limited in two respects. First, the state deadlines and proceedings are held in abeyance rather than permanently vacated. And Judge Tuckin said she would release the March trial date if jurisdiction were returned to her. Uh, second, the court's other protective measures are not in abeyance, which means that Trump still has to follow his pretrial release conditions and the judge's gag orders. The judge also said her protective orders uh, guiding discovery and jury procedures are still active. And it's theoretically possible the entire criminal prosecution from is not necessarily stayed, There's case law stating that an appeal only divests the federal court over control of, as I said, those aspects of the case involved in the appeal. Here, that could mean the rest of the case continues to move forward, but as Judge Chuckin notes, there is no circuit precedent on the court's protective orders, quote, much less instructive cases in the context of an interlocutory immunity appeal. The Supreme Court recently stayed an arbitration case in its entirety because, quote, the question on appeal is whether the case belongs in arbitration or instead in district court, Uh, the entire case is essentially involved in the appeal. So here we don't know exactly what a claim of presidential immunity will do to the case as a whole, but clearly there will be delays in some respects. Now, obviously you're going to want a good lawyer to argue in front of the Supreme court, but if you want a great lawyer, my firm, The Eagle Team, can help. If you've been in a car crash, suffered a data breach, or have a worker's comp or social security disability issue, we can represent you or help find you the right attorney who can. It's always important to talk to a lawyer right away so you can get the best representation and find out what your options are. So just click on the link in the description for a free consultation with my team because you don't just need a legal team, you need The Eagle Team. Link is below. But rather than wait for the appeals court to rule, Smith filed a petition for certiorari requesting that the Supreme Court expedite Trump's appeal from the district court order. And Trump opposes this motion even though he wants the case dismissed. Now, if this appeal goes forward on an ordinary or even expedited timeline, the Supreme Court would not decide it until probably next term in 2025. And barring something completely unforeseen, Trump will be the Republican Party's nominee for president. Then if Trump is elected, he might argue that the case can't move forward because sitting presidents can't be prosecuted, or he might just dismiss the case himself. So the first question is, can Smith bypass the Court of Appeals? Uh, Trump world has reacted to Smith's move with the typical understatement. For example, quote, crooked Joe Biden's henchman deranged Jack Smith is so obsessed with interfering in the 2024 presidential election with a goal of preventing President Trump from retaking the Oval Office, as the president is poised to do, that Smith is willing to try for a Hail Mary by racing to the Supreme Court and attempting to bypass the appellate process. But in opposing the government's motion, Trump complains that it took too long for the government to prosecute him, so now the court should take as long as possible to dismiss the case against him. Quote, the prosecution waited over two years to bring this lawless case and then sought an extraordinarily expedited trial calendar demanding the jury selection begin in december 2023 notwithstanding there is a process by which the supreme court can weigh in before an appeals court renders a decision federal law says quote an application for the supreme court for a writ of certiorari to review a case before judgment has been rendered in the court of appeals may be made at any time before judgment and when is it okay to ask for an expedited review of this type Well, when, quote, the cases of such imperative public importance as to justify deviation from normal appellate practice and to require immediate determination in the court. And rather than being a liberal conspiracy, it's a process by which the Supreme Court can issue a decision without having to wait for the lower court of appeals, often when things are incredibly important for the country and also when it doesn't make any sense to wait for the court of appeals if the Supreme Court is going to have the final word on the decision anyway. Smith argues that this is obviously a case of imperative public importance, the amenability to criminal prosecution of a former president of the United States for conduct undertaken during his presidency. It requires no extended discussion to confirm that this case, involving charges that respondents sought to thwart the peaceful transfer of power through violations of federal criminal law, is at the apex of public importance. The charges implicate a central tenet of our democracy. And there is some precedent to support the idea of the court acting quickly to resolve a claim of presidential immunity. As uh, the government wrote in its briefing, quote, when the government sought certiorari before judgment in the United States versus Nixon, a case presenting similarly consequential issues of presidential privilege, the court granted the petition and resolved the constitutional question expeditiously so that the trial could begin as scheduled. And in the Nixon case, the court granted certain issued an opinion just 16 days later, in part so that one of the Watergate criminal trials could proceed. Smith argues that, quote, this is a quintessential example of an important question of federal law that has not been, but should be, settled by this court. And the Supreme Court has never directly addressed criminal immunity, even though it comes up every time a sitting president orchestrates a burglary, has sex with an intern, or tries to overthrow the elected government. And Trump's lawyers responded by accusing Jack Smith of trying to cancel Christmas and scolding the special counsel for trying to make the court staff miserable during the holidays. That's not a joke. That's actually what they wrote in their briefing, quote, it's as if the special counsel growled with his grinch fingers nervously drumming i must find some way to keep christmas from coming but how now that's probably not what i would write in my own supreme court briefing but you gotta hand it to him it's uh, memorable at least and trump argues that the march 2024 trial date itself is unconstitutional and that the public interest weighs strongly against the request for expedited review trump contends that expedited consideration would violate president trump's due process and sixth amendment rights among others And he argues that it would deprive him of the time necessary to prepare his defense since the case includes 11.5 million pages of discovery. Though this does ignore an important fact, which is that the immunity issue is largely a matter of law, not fact. And if the Supreme Court agrees with Trump that he is immune from prosecution, then there's no need to read the 11.5 million pages of documents because the case would be over. And the Supreme Court quickly agreed to expedite consideration of Smith's petition. Now, this is not the same thing as agreeing to decide the case before the appeals court makes a decision. This is a decision to decide whether to decide that case up front. Uh, and uh, Smith is taking nothing for granted. He can currently file a motion to expedite proceedings in the DC Circuit, asking for an expedited schedule that will ensure that a decision is made fast enough that the Supreme Court would hear it during the current term. The DC federal appeals court granted the government's request to expedite consideration of Trump's appeal. And the appeals court has set deadlines for briefs to be filed between December 23rd and January 2nd. Now, what about the merits of the case? Well, American presidents enjoy absolute immunity from most civil lawsuits involving conduct that occurred during their presidential terms. The constitution does not explicitly say that the president actually has any litigation immunity because of his role as chief executive, but this immunity exists by judicial interpretation. And in practice, it means that a president is given the freedom to exercise his official duties without being exposed to litigation for civil damages. And in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, a five to four Supreme Court ruled that a president is entitled to absolute immunity from legal liability for civil damages based on his official acts, including acts on the outer perimeter of his duties. The court defined the president's official duties quite broadly to prevent future presidents from being sued for, quote, virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. Now, the contours of immunity from civil liability are still being defined. In Clinton versus Jones, the Supreme Court gave Paula Jones the green light to sue Bill Clinton for sexual harassment that happened before he was president. And when e. Jean Carroll sued Trump for defamation after he said that she lied about sexual assault, he asserted that he had immunity because he called her a liar while he was president and his statements were included in the outer perimeter of his official duties. But last week, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Trump waived immunity. The first time a court has held that presidential immunity was waivable. And Trump also raised immunity as a defense to lawsuits filed by Capitol Police officers and members of Congress, who assert uh, that Trump incited a riot on January 6th, but a three-judge panel of the DC Circuit rejected this claim. The court held that Trump's remarks on that day were not necessarily within the outer perimeter of his official acts. It's possible that they were, and it's possible that they weren't. That will have to be decided at trial. And when he acts outside of the functions of his office, he does not continue to enjoy immunity from damages liability just because he happens to be president. Rather, as the Supreme Court made clear in Clinton versus Jones, a president's official act immunity by nature does not extend to his unofficial actions. When he acts in an unofficial private capacity, he is subject to civil suits like any private citizen. But the bigger question is what about criminal liability for acts which occurred during the presidency? Now, Donald Trump wants the same circuit court that decided the Capitol Police case to rule that he can't be criminally prosecuted for anything he did while president. Now, no court has ever ruled that a sitting president is immune from all criminal liability while president. However, uh, Trump is arguing a school of thought known as the unitary executive theory. And this theory was largely developed by Antonin Scalia while he served in the Nixon administration. Now, according to this theory, every power not expressly granted to the judiciary or the legislature is given to the president as part of his duties to faithfully execute the law. And it postulates that the entire federal government serves at the command of the president, and neither Congress nor the courts have a right to check the president's orders. And there are some scholars that extend the unitary executive theory to make the president immune from criminal prosecution. However, there have been some roadblocks to this idea. For example, in 2020, the Supreme Court ruled against Trump's version of the unitary executive theory in a case where he challenged New York's right to subpoena his business records for alleged financial crimes. In Trump v. Vance, the court rejected the proposition that a sitting president uh, can use his powers under Article II of the Constitution to assert immunity from criminal investigation. Then, in Trump v. Mazars, the Supreme Court ruled that the president wasn't immune from congressional subpoenas. Investigation is different from prosecution though. The Justice Department has long taken the position that a sitting president could be investigated but not charged with a crime until after he leaves office. Uh, This is why Robert Mueller's team prosecuted Trump's associates, but did not charge Trump with crimes. Though the Justice Department's reasoning doesn't have the force of law and the analysis is a bit shaky. However, even the DOJ agrees that a president can be prosecuted after his term ends. But Foreign President Trump has gone a step further in asserting that a former president can never face criminal prosecution for acts that they did while president, unless they were impeached and convicted uh, in Congress. Now, Judge Chutkin has rejected this out of hand. Quote, the Constitution's text, structure, and history do not support that contention. No court or any other branch of government has ever accepted it, and this court will not so hold. Whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass Former presidents enjoy no special conditions on their federal criminal liability. Defendant may be subject to federal investigation, indictment, prosecution, conviction, and punishment for any criminal acts undertaken while in office. And in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court previously affirmed that there is no provision in the Constitution conferring criminal immunity. And a memo from the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel confirms that, quote, the Constitution provides no explicit immunity from criminal sanctions for any civil officer, including the current president. And it appears the framers of the Constitution included immunity for other federal officials, such as members of Congress, who are protected by the Speech and Debate Clause, but they didn't give this kind of immunity to the president. And as for Trump's assertion that the Impeachment Judgment Clause grants him immunity, Uh, this clause says quote judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Now Trump says this means that he can't be indicted, convicted, or punished unless the Senate convicted him at his impeachment trial. Uh, Judge Chutkin so far has said that the first part of the clause was meant to distinguish the presidency from British tradition in which an impeachment conviction could result in additional penalties like fines and even execution. And the second part of the impeachment clause that says the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, according to law, uh, Judge Chutkin concluded that this means that further punishment by the courts is possible. Uh, Trump argues that it's only possible if the president is in fact convicted during impeachment. And while Trump's argument already has traction with Justice Alito, who discussed it in a dissent in Trump versus Vance, uh, Judge Chuckin wrote that even if Trump's interpretation was valid, it would only protect the president while he was in office, which has been the OLC's position since the Nixon era. And Trump's argument would undermine accountability for other law-breaking officials because it would, quote, apply not only to the president, but also the vice president and all civil officers of the United States who may likewise be impeached. And the order discusses the history of criminality by executive officials. Vice President Aaron Burr was indicted even though his impeachment trial did not end in conviction. Vice President Spiro Agnew was indicted despite not being impeached and eventually resigned and entering a no contest plea. And in one of the more ridiculous incidences in presidential history, President Grant was cited for reckless driving of horses, uh, and then the next day he did it again. An officer arrested and fined Grant, but Grant did not argue that he was immune from prosecution. Prior cases deciding issues of presidential immunity addressed the Article II interests of the presidency. For example, Nixon versus Fitzgerald was about a president allegedly injuring individuals who had to sue for damages. But both the DOJ's legal team and the Trump legal team are gonna need a lot of coffee over the holidays to write their briefs, due right before Christmas and right after New Year's. Luckily, they can get some great coffee from today's sponsor, Trade Coffee. Trade's great because not only do they have a huge selection of your favorite coffees, but they have a fine tuning matching process that helps you discover fresh coffee based on your taste preferences. Oh, hey, and this holiday season, Trade is the perfect gift for any coffee lover. There's two ways you can gift Trade. You can gift a subscription or a gift box like this one. Uh, For a coffee subscription, all you have to do is choose how much you want to spend, meaning the number of bags of coffee that your friend or loved one will receive, and then you can personalize the rest with Trade's Coffee Quiz. Or you can get a coffee gift box. I can personally tell you that the gift boxes uh, are amazing. I got one with uh, chocolate chili and caramel syrup. Usually caramel syrup tastes like artificial goo, but this stuff is so incredible. I'm actually surprised that there's any of it left because I was fully willing to swig it directly. And then the bag of coffee it came with was great. It matched the syrups perfectly. Now I have very specific tastes in coffee. I basically want something that tastes like hot chocolate and pairs well with milk. And Trade is always able to find me the perfect bean. And let's be honest, you claim you want a rich dark roast, but you really want a coffee milkshake. But either way, Trade has you covered. And if you already know what you like, then they probably already have your favorite roaster in stock at a great price. You can even choose whole beans or your preferred grind. You can get it delivered straight to your door or straight to the door of a lucky friend or loved one. So if you love coffee or are looking for a great gift this holiday season, try Trade Coffee. All you have to do is click on the link in the description or the one that's on screen right now. And not only will you get your first bag free, you'll also get free shipping. So get your first bag free by clicking on the link on screen. And of course you have all the gift bag and gift subscription options too. So, click on the link to check it out. After that, click on this link over here for more Legal Eagle. George Santos has been expelled from Congress. It's shocking because George Santos had one heck of a resume. He's the grandson of Holocaust survivors, the former star of the Baruch College volleyball team, a financial whiz kid who worked on Wall Street, an animal lover with experience in the nonprofit sector a producer on the Broadway smash hit, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, and an actor who appeared on Hannah Montana. His life story has been touched by some of the biggest events of this era. He lost four employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. His five-year-old niece was kidnapped by Chinese communists at a New York playground. His mother was the first female executive at a major financial institution, but like others who worked in finance in Manhattan, she was tragically murdered on 9-11. Santos has gone through more in his scant 25 years on this planet than many have experienced in an entire lifetime. As some have described him, he's for a scump, but evil. Oh wait, absolutely none of the things that I've just said are true in any way. Uh, Santos's grandparents were from Brazil. His mother was a cook living in Brazil on September 11th, and thankfully she lived for 15 more years. He didn't attend Baruch College or any college, it seems. He wasn't a Broadway producer. His financial expertise consists mainly of credit card theft. Uh, none of his employees were murdered. His niece was never kidnapped. He's Catholic, not Jewish. Uh, he stole puppies from the amish and i could go on however george devolder santos finally has an accomplishment he can hang his sweater vest on on december 1st 2023 he became just the sixth lawmaker in u.s history and the first republican to be expelled from the house and you might be laughing now but unlike most of the members who voted to expel him santos really will go down in american history so today let's talk about how to get legally expelled from the house of representatives now all those lies made santos a fabulist but not necessarily a criminal As we've talked about many times on this channel, uh, politicians can lie to American citizens, often without repercussion. However, on May 10th, Santos was indicted on 13 criminal counts of wire fraud, unlawful monetary transactions over $10,000, theft of public money, and false statements. As Scowl Al Spencer explained at the time. It contains 13 criminal counts, including wire fraud, unlawful monetary transactions over $10,000, theft of public money, and false statements. And in October, prosecutors hit Santos with 10 more counts of conspiracy to commit offenses against the US, including wire fraud, making false statements to the Federal Election Commission, falsifying records, aggravated identity theft, and access device fraud. The criminal charges finally prompted the House Ethics Committee to start an investigation, and the committee released a 56-page report on November 16th. It says Santos stole money from his campaign, reported fictitious loans, deceived donors, and engaged in fraudulent business dealings. The report says Santos used that money to cover his personal expenses. Uh, Santos has a penchant for wearing sweaters under his blazers, but he apparently used campaign funds at luxury clothing retailers like Hermes, uh, although I've yet to see him wear anything that costs over $4,000, as detailed in the report. Santos visited a plastic surgeon and spent almost $3,000 on Botox, which may or may not have worked. He used campaign funds for other medical spa visits, including a $1,500 purchase on the campaign debit card at Mirza Aesthetics and a $1,400 charge at Virtual Skin Spa. He spent... $3,300 in campaign money at an Airbnb in the Hamptons, and $2,200 in Atlantic City. He spent money on OnlyFans despite claiming that he had no idea what that site was. Just discovered what OnlyFans was about three weeks ago when it was brought up in a discussion in my office. What do you think? And I was was oblivious to the whole concept. (laughs) Now, we don't know for sure what he purchased on OnlyFans, but hopefully soon we'll find out the naked truth, expose every detail, and lay bare the stark reality. The ethics committee also accused Santos of stealing campaign donors' identities and racking up thousands of dollars in unauthorized charges on their credit cards to benefit his campaign and himself personally. This misconduct includes defrauding other members of Congress and their families. Ohio Republican Max Miller said Santos, quote, had charged my personal credit card and the personal card of my mother for contribution amounts that exceeded FEC limits. Neither my mother nor I approved these charges or were aware of them. The charges resulted in Miller spending, quote, tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees to resolve the situation. Miller claims he had seen a list of 400 people, including other Republican House members, who Santos also defrauded in this way. The day before the vote, uh, Miller and Santos exchanged barbs about this, uh, with Miller saying. You, sir, are a crook. I know I should direct my comments to the chair. Santos fired back by referencing accusations that Miller assaulted his girlfriend. My colleague wants to come up here, call me a crook same colleague who's accused of being a woman beater. Just a real classy dude there. Now, obviously Santos is going to need a good lawyer for the DOJ's prosecution. But if you want a great lawyer, my firm, the Eagle team can help. If you've been in a car crash, suffered a data breach, or have a worker's comp issue, we can represent you or help find you the right attorney. It's important to talk to a lawyer right away so you can get the best representation and find out what your options are. So just click on the link in the description for a free consultation with my team right away. Because you don't just need a legal team, you need the Eagle team. The link is down below. Uh, Now, the Constitution grants each House of Congress the power to, quote, punish its members for disorderly behavior and, with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. Expulsion is the process of ejecting a member of Congress after that person has been elected and seated. The ethics committees have jurisdiction to investigate the conduct of members that might reflect poorly on the body of Congress uh, in which they serve during the constitutional convention the founding fathers never discussed the type of misconduct that would warrant expulsion they were more concerned with providing a restraint on that power hence the two-thirds majority requirement there wasn't much debate about the meaning of the expulsion clause leaving future americans with the responsibility of figuring out how it applies and while the founding fathers probably never contemplated a member of congress using campaign funds to buy an OnlyFans subscription that probably qualifies as something that uh, can lead to expulsion Now the Supreme Court and lower federal courts have not decided a case about the expulsion of a member of Congress because members who weren't expelled haven't challenged their expulsions in court. Though some members like James Traficant and Charlie Rangel sought legislative review of disciplinary proceedings that were invoked pursuant to the expulsion clause. But courts demurred because of the political question doctrine. Now we've talked about the political question doctrine in the past most recently in the video about whether Trump is disqualified from the presidency, uh, political questions are controversies that are so politically charged that the courts shouldn't get involved, uh, preferring to leave it up to the legislature, which would almost certainly apply in the case of expulsion. Then there's also the separation of powers issue. The three branches of government would rather police themselves than have the other branches meddle in disciplinary matters. So Congress says it has the sole right to discipline its members, while the Supreme Court insists that Congress has no right to impose an ethics code on the justices. The Supreme Court has discussed the expulsion power in dicta from time to time. For example, in 1972, former Senator Daniel Brewster challenged his bribery indictment on the basis that his conduct was protected by the speech and debate clause. The court held that the legislative privilege does not encompass all legislative acts and Brewster uh, could be prosecuted. The court observed that when it comes to discipline and expulsion quote, an accused member is judged by no specifically articulated standards and is at the mercy of an almost unbridled discretion of the charging body that functions at once as accuser, prosecutor, judge, and jury from whose decision there is no established right to review. Now, some lawyers argue it's unconstitutional to expel someone for conduct that happened before they were elected, particularly if the member's conduct was known by the voters when they elected that person. They say that conflicts with Article One's mandate that the House, quote, shall be composed of members chosen by the people. Now, a local newspaper, the North Shore Leader, uncovered many of Santos' lies before he was elected to the House of Representatives, but I don't think you can compare Santos with congressmen whose constituents knew they were big-time crooks or were already in prison. For example, Ohio Democrat James Traficant uh, was convicted of taking many different bribes, and Traffigant managed to get 20% of the vote while serving a federal prison term. Republican Clay Higgins said that Santos was elected by the people and their decision should be sacrosanct, but New York Republican Nick LaLolta was having none of this. He didn't work where he said he did. He didn't go to school where he said he did. He's far from rich. He isn't Jewish. And his mother was not in the South Tower during 9-11 so the argument that new yorkers voted george santos in and that we should wait until november of 2024 for voters to decide his fate is inherently flawed since voters weren't given a chance in the first in the first chance to determine who they were actually voting for now some members who voted not to expel santos say they did it because he didn't get the due process that he would get in a court of law what i'm finding fault with is that our members have forgotten that everybody is afforded due process under law, not due process under the Ethics Committee. But the Constitution is clear that Congress doesn't have to wait until someone is criminally convicted in cases of expulsion or impeachment. And of course, the Constitution doesn't say that the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors or disorderly behavior actually mean criminal convictions. The only other possible theoretical limitation on the expulsion power is if it's used to trample on a member's individual rights. So if Congress expelled someone because of that person's race or religion, they might have a decent legal argument, but that certainly doesn't apply here. Now, Congress does not use this expulsion power very often. Before Santos, only 15 members and five members of the House had ever been expelled from office. The earliest expulsion case was in 1797 when Senator William Blount, quote, concocted a scheme for Indians and frontiersmen to attack Spanish Florida and Louisiana in order to transfer those territories to Great Britain. Blount wrote all this down in a letter, uh, which President Adams used to get him expelled. As for the other expulsions, 17 were related to the Civil War, uh, and in 1980, uh, Pennsylvania Democrat Michael Myers, no relation, uh, was expelled for taking a bribe. James Traffikant, who I mentioned before, was expelled in 2002, and that brings us up to today the santos resolution passed 311 to 114 despite republican house leadership's attempts to save santos that includes speaker mike johnson who voted against the resolution johnson is facing questions about his own finances and since his election to the house in 2016 none of johnson's financial disclosures have included a bank account and as for the other corruption train wreck in congress uh, senator bob Menendez, fellow democrat john fetterman says it's time for the senator from egypt to go and if you are going to expel santos how can you allow to somebody like Menendez to remain in the Senate? And things came full circle when Federman hired Santos to make a sarcastic cameo, urging Menendez to stay strong and stay in Congress. Hey, Bobby, uh, look i don't think i need to tell you but these people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away you make them put up or shut up you stand your ground sir and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there stay strong merry christmas now there will be a special election to fill santos's seat and Santos' criminal trial is scheduled for September 2024. Now, the expulsion of George Santos has been covered extensively by more than 300 news outlets. 36% of the reporting is coming from the left, and 20% is coming from the right. And if you compare the headlines, you'll start to see some interesting framing. On the left, you have outlets saying that he was finally expelled, and third time's the charm, with reference to Santos' expulsion, while on the right, news outlets usually stick to just expelled. These word changes are subtle, but they play a big role in how readers perceive the story the first set of words might imply that we knew santos was a fraud all along and that it was a long time coming While the second set of words provides an understated account that downplays some of his malfeasance now all this is possible thanks to today's sponsor ground news a website and app developed by a former nasa engineer on a mission to give readers an easy data-driven objective way to read the news every story comes with a quick visual breakdown of the political bias factuality and ownership of the sources reporting all backed by ratings from three independent news monitoring organizations I especially like the new ground news comparison feature, which highlights specific differences between left and right reporting. For the story on Santos' expulsion, you can see that left-leaning outlets tended to focus on his use of campaign funds for personal expenses, while the right presents factual information about the expulsion without prioritizing loaded or emphatic language. Ground News also has a blind spot feed, which highlights stories that are disproportionately covered by one side of the political spectrum. These tools are so important so we don't live in an echo chamber or get misled by subtle and sometimes not so subtle language in the news. So give Ground News a try by clicking on the link that's on screen right now or down in the description. And just for the holidays through December 28th, you can get their biggest sale of the year right now you can get a 40 percent discount on ground news's vantage subscription their vantage subscription includes unlimited access to all ground news features and with the sale subscription is only five dollars a month or you can start with their pro plan which is less than one dollars and it's the biggest deal of the year so go to ground.news legal eagle or click on the link below and you'll get a 40% discount on unlimited limited access to their app website and newsletters all for just five dollars a month After that, click on this link over here for more Legal Eagle. Disney finally lost the copyright to Mickey Mouse. Well, not all of Mickey Mouse. Parts of Mickey Mouse, look, it's it's complicated. Now, you might recall that when A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh lost copyright protection in 2022, the slasher flick Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey soon followed. And on January 1st, 2024, Tigger joined his bear friend in the land of public domain, and a violent version of Tigger will appear in the sequel to that movie. But Tigger and Pooh Bear are not the only beloved childhood characters who are getting a makeover. Make way for Steamboat Mickey. Cheese and carnage. Yes, now that at least the very first version of Mickey is part of the public domain, the internet has definitely wasted no time in creating ridiculous versions of Mickey Mouse. So the question is now that Steamboat Willie is in the public domain, what does this mean for being able to use Mickey in all kinds of other contexts? Well, this is a very, very complicated subject, but it all dates back to the release of Walt Disney's short cartoon, Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie in 1928, which was a major milestone in the rise of talkies and the development of animation, featuring an early version of Mickey Mouse. This version of the Mickey Mouse character entered the public domain on January 1st, 2024. Now, as a young illustrator, Walt Disney had an early brush with copyright law that changed the way that he approached business. Working with fellow animator, Ub Iwerks, Disney created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, who starred in 26 short films in the 1920s. At the time, Disney and iWorks worked for Universal, which meant the company owned the copyright to Oswald. When Disney asked Universal to increase his rate by $250 per short, the company secretly signed Disney's top animators and removed him as their boss. The company then offered Disney $500 less per short. Unfortunately for Walt Disney, he didn't have the option of joining a creator-owned platform like Nebula, where storytellers have creative freedom. Uh, So Disney turned down the offer and lost all rights to the Oswald character. Oswald did not return to Disney until 2006 when NBC Universal traded him back to ABC Disney in exchange for sportscaster Al Michaels. I didn't even know that Al Michaels was animated. That explains how he's had such longevity. Now, there was some question about whether Universal actually still had the Oswald copyright since they may have forgotten to renew it, but, but neither company has let this technicality get in the way of a good story. But back in the 1920s, Disney vowed to never lose control of his creative works again. After the Oswald fiasco, he was almost broke and wound up living in the studio, uh, where he often heard mice scurrying around the building. Walt started leaving food out for the mice and eventually befriended the bravest one, who became his pet. Walt even let the mouse live in a custom-made suite inside his desk drawer. That humble mouse wound up inspiring the entire Disney empire when Disney, after a particularly absinthe heavy night, heard the mouse squeak, keep a firm grip on your intellectual property and your riches will be as numerous as the stars. We assume. Uh, Disney and Oob invented an animated mouse and put him in cartoons. The first two cartoons featuring Mickey Mouse bombed, but they were silent shorts and didn't see wide distribution. Steamboat Willie was the first cartoon to have a post-produced soundtrack of dialogue and synchronized sound effects with orchestral music mirroring the action on screen. Mickey Mouse doesn't speak in the film, but the scene where he pilots a steamboat while whistling the song Steamboat Bill represented a breakthrough in animation. The public was amazed by Steamboat Willie and it became a sensation. The eight minute cartoon debuted in front of a feature called Gang War that was expected to be a big hit. Gang War turned out to be forgettable, but Steamboat Willie was such a hit that allowed Disney to avoid bankruptcy, hire additional animators, and experiment with the techniques that would lead to the golden age of animation. But even the mighty Walt Disney Company is not immune to the Copyright Act. Although, as we'll talk about, it has certainly influenced the development of American law. In the US, the Copyright Act grants creators a number of exclusive legal rights over their original works of authorship, including literary, dramatic, musical, artistic, and other intellectual works. The law protects the owner of the work if other parties copy, present, or display the work without the owner's permission. So if the copyright work is an animated film like Disney's Alice in Wonderland, copyright law protects the film in its entirety as well as its titles, characters, music, and merchandise. So that means that if you sell a T-shirt with the image of Alice or paint it on a mural outside your daycare, you're going to get sued by Disney because they own the copyright for Alice in Wonderland. Yes, it really is a litigious world after all. Copyright expired. The idea, and it's totally debatable, is that if you give authors a monopoly over the works that they create, they will be incentivized to create more. If they didn't have protection, they would be disinclined from creating that kind of art. But there is a catch. Copyright owners don't have control over their work forever. All copyrights eventually expire, which means the creative works are then owned by the public. The term the public domain refers to creative materials that are not protected by intellectual property laws anyone can use a public domain work without requesting permission from the original author or the company that owned the work and when a work is in the public domain you don't even have to change it into something new into a derivative work you can use it and even sell it in its original form though at the same time you should know that something being public and being in the public domain are very very different things just because something is public the fact that you can google something on the internet uh, does not mean that that thing is in the public domain in fact it's probably not in the public domain Usually it takes a lot of time for the copyright to expire for something to no longer have a copyright and to finally enter the public domain. And there are four ways that creative works usually arrive in the public domain. The copyright expires, the copyright owner fails to follow copyright renewal formalities, the copyright owner donates the material to the public, or copyright law doesn't protect a certain type of work like facts, basic math, or recipes. Now, since most reasonable people agree that artists should be paid for their work, why doesn't copyright last forever? Well, the idea behind Public Domain is that it fosters innovation, creativity, and knowledge. It encourages artists to draw on previous works of art to create something new. It makes it easier for publishers to publish lower-cost editions of important books. It makes it easier for teachers to distribute educational materials, and it helps artists build on the art that existed before. Obviously Walt Disney himself made excellent use of the public domain by taking popular fairy tales such as Cinderella and classics like Alice in Wonderland and turning them into beloved movies because those were in the public domain at the time. In fact, even Steamboat Willie made use of the public domain. The film used the song Turkey in the Straw, which was in the public domain at the time of production. And the title Steamboat Willie was a reference to Steamboat Bill Jr. and Buster Keaton movie that was released that same year. Heck, that reference might be one of the first uses of fair use parody uh, in an animated movie. So Disney designed his movies to appeal to audiences who were already familiar with a popular work. Now Steamboat Willie was unveiled as a Walt Disney Animation Studios short on November 18th, 1928, When it was released, the U.S. copyright law protected copyrights for 56 years. But by the time the copyright on Steamboat Willie was due to expire in 1984, Disney had become the biggest entertainment company in the world, and Mickey was one of the most recognizable characters on Earth. So Disney, as well as other companies, uh, lobbied Congress to extend the copyright term. The result was the Copyright Act of 1976, which increased the renewal term for works uh, copyrighted before 1978 that had not already entered the public domain from 28 years to 47 years, giving a total term of 75 years. Disney delayed Mickey's entry into the public domain yet again in 1998. Uh, Disney, again with other companies, uh, lobbied so hard for the 1998 amendments to the law that it's sometimes called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, although the guy that wrote it also had something to gain from it as well. The law is officially known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, and it extended the copyright protection from 47 to 67 years, giving copyright holders 19 more years. Uh, that's Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher, who actually went on to become a congressman. So that meant the copyright for Steamboat Willie was set to expire on January 1st, 2024. Now, for further discussion of the expansion of the various copyright acts, uh, check out Jake's video over at Corridor Crew. He is also a lawyer and uh, does a great job of breaking down how the various acts were extended. But this time around, to the surprise of many, Congress did not extend the Copyright Act, further delaying uh, Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse's entry into the public domain. But if you thought Disney was just going to sit on his hands, (laughs) you don't know the Disney Corporation. Uh, Instead, the company took another path, and instead, it's now relying on trademark law. Now, obviously, Disney has really good lawyers, but if you want a great lawyer, my firm, The Eagle Team, can help. If you've suffered an injury or death in the family, got in a car crash, or are dealing with a workers' comp or social security issue, we can represent you or help find you the right attorney. It's really important to talk to a lawyer right away so you can get the best representation and find out what all of your options are. So just click on the link in the description for a free consultation with my team. Because you don't just need a legal team, you need The Eagle Team. So click on the link below. While copyright law protects artistic works that are laid down in some sort of tangible medium, trademark law protects a word, phrase, symbol, or design that's used by an entity to identify its product or service. The idea is a trademark is for the good of a consumer to know where goods or services come from. They see a trademark or a service mark and they can identify who is providing that service or good. And anticipating that they might lose its copyright in Mickey Mouse, Disney incorporated this image of Mickey at the wheel of the steamship into its logo. It now runs before every animated feature. The company filed a trademark application in 2022, describing the mark as, quote, a motion mark of an animator's drawings, visually flipping one after another and transitioning into an animated clip of a mouse character tapping his foot and whistling while holding a ship's wheel, followed by the appearance of the wording Walt Disney Animation Studios underneath the animated mouse character. Now, this might be a smart move because trademarks do not expire as long as you're actually using them in commerce. There are trade-offs in all IP. Copyright is automatic. As soon as you create the art, effectively you have a copyright, whether you register it or not. Uh, Trademarks require you to actually use them in service. Uh, You can't register a trademark and then never use it. That won't protect anything. So here's where I think we are. Steamboat Willie, the animated short, is in the public domain. For sure, you can use that uh, animated short and display it uh, as a video. But Steamboat Willie slash the original version of Mickey Mouse uh, might be a trademark itself, and it might be also a copyrightable character. You probably can't use the public domain version of Mickey in a way that makes consumers think that the work is produced by or sponsored by Disney. Uh, The reason Disney started incorporating Steamboat Mickey into its animated features was to create an association between that version of the character and the modern Disney audience. And it's an open question whether you can even make a work of art featuring the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse, that doesn't make you visualize the popular disney character as it exists today believe me this is going to make a fascinating test case for some poor unfortunate soul but that's just the tip of the legal iceberg now nobody really knows how this is going to play out in court a lot will depend on whether disney becomes a trademark hawk or decides to just let it go in theory people can use the original image of steamboat willie and etsy today is filled with products like this retro disney t-shirt or this cutting board However, if any of this threatens to dilute the trademark, uh, Disney could use trademark law to crack down. And as you can see, the earliest iteration of Mickey had solid black eyes and skinny arms and legs, and he didn't wear gloves or even speak. He had a longer tail and nose, and he was more of a trickster than the wholesome piece of intellectual property that we know today. All the newer versions of Mickey, including the ones that you're most familiar with, uh, which show Mickey wearing red shorts and white gloves, will still be protected by existing copyrights. Or will they? What if someone argued that all of the versions of Mickey Mouse that Disney thinks are protected by copyright law are actually just derivative of that first original Steamboat Mickey, and therefore you can make a movie using the character traits that appear in the later Mickey appearances? What would the courts think? Well, the answer lies in the way that courts apply the originality requirement of derivative works. In the United States, an alteration to an original work is called a derivative work. And only the copyright owner has the right to make or authorize an adaptation of an original. For example, the movie Jurassic Park is a derivative of the novel Jurassic Park, and Steven Spielberg had to get permission from Michael Crichton to turn the novel into the movie. And a derivative work is entitled to its own separate copyright, so long as the additional material is more than a simple editing change and contains materials that are original to the work. So this raises two questions. Actually, this raises like a 1,000 questions, but. I'm gonna only uh, talk about two of them. Uh, The first is, can Disney somehow extend its copyright over the Steamboat Willie cartoon by tweaking the character? And the second is, can someone make a cartoon based on Steamboat Mickey and include aspects of modern Mickey? Well, all they'd have to do is argue that the later changes are derivative of Steamboat Willie and are therefore in the public domain. Well, this is not the first time these questions have come up and there has been similar litigation, thanks to the litigiousness of the Arthur Conan Doyle estate, i.e. the estate of the author that created Sherlock Holmes. Now, Sherlock Holmes has been around since 1887, and at least 50 stories featuring Holmes and Watson have been in the public domain. But because Arthur Conan Doyle was so prolific, a lot of these Sherlock Holmes stories continued into the 1920s. So there've been many decades when some, but not all of the Sherlock Holmes stories have been part of the public domain. And that raises a question, what happens to the characters contained in all of those books when some of the books are in the public domain and some are not? And in particular, when lawyer and author Leslie Klinger edited an anthology of new home stories inspired by the original characters, which had long been in the public domain, uh, the Doyle estate threatened to sue. Klinger went to court seeking a declaratory judgment allowing him to use the Holmes and Watson characters from Doyle's public domain works. In response, the estate argued that a character is a work of authorship that is not really finished uh, until his complete character arc, including every story in which he appeared uh, was in the public domain. And since there were 10 Sherlock Holmes stories that were still under US copyright protection, the theory was that none of the others were in the public domain. The argument would have given authors a way to maintain control over the works effectively forever, simply by issuing new works that tweak the character's traits, uh, and then theoretically the copyright would never expire. Under this theory, the public domain only begins to run when the author puts down their pen. Now, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals blacked this out of court and affirmed that there is no such thing as perpetual copyright. But it's still left open the possibility that later Sherlock Holmes was a different character than early Sherlock Holmes and thus would receive a different copyright. So there's still a question of, is there sufficient originality in the modern Mickey to justify a copyright protection? And under American law, Disney can only claim rights for material that represents an original creative expression. For it to be original, it must have at least a modicum of creativity, which is why the Supreme Court in the Feist case uh, once held that the white pages of a phone book aren't created enough for copyright protection. It's just names and phone numbers. For my younger viewers, the white pages was a giant public book that uh, we used to look up people's phone numbers to be able to call them. Uh, yes, we lived in a constant state of being doxed. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. But at the same time, generic character traits are not protected by copyright law, uh, nor are just trivial additions. So common tropes like robots or spies or samurais or cowboys are not copyrightable in and of themselves. You'd have to get a lot more specific than that. And arguably, there aren't that many differences between Steamboat Mickey and modern Mickey. His character is slightly different in how he acts. Uh, the early Mickey, acted more like a teenager. The 2022, Mickey is more like a seasoned adult. I'm sure many would argue that changes of Mickey Mouse over the years represent a, a huge shift in the way that he is portrayed. Uh, and others would argue that they're trivial and shouldn't receive independent copyright protection. So to make a complicated situation even more complicated, you have a lot of different legal issues at play here. One is the copyright ability of the Steamboat Willie Short. That's in the public domain. Uh, the character of Mickey Mouse, it might be in the public domain. Uh, there's probably gonna be some litigation over that then you have disney trying to trademark steamboat willie the character for purposes other than copyright and that's relatively untested now i've been looking at so many funny steamboat willie edits on the internet i'm probably not going to have time to cook dinner tonight Luckily, I have today's sponsor, Factor, because Factor makes meeting your nutrition goals easier than ever by delivering fresh, never frozen, dietitian-approved meals right to your doorstop. And the meals are completely ready to eat in just two minutes. Eliminate the hours it would take to shop, meal prep, and cook, so you can spend your day doing the things that you actually want to do. Are you too busy working on your New Year's resolution, but wanna make sure that you're eating well? But with Factor, you can skip the extra trip to the grocery store and all of the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Factor meals arrive pre-prepared and ready to eat in just two minutes. The same amount of time that I could even think about going to the grocery store, my Factor meal is already done. Sometimes I just want a good, healthy meal without having to cook, and it's surprisingly affordable. And now Factor also offers Gourmet Plus meals as part of your weekly options, which means you can get a little gourmet with your meal plan whenever you're craving something special. Gourmet meals like Surf and Turf or Surf and Surf like shrimp and salmon, uh, they're all delicious. And you can relish the best of spring and winter flavors. All of their meals are really extremely delicious, like bruschetta shrimp risotto, green goddess chicken, and grilled steakhouse filet mignon, ready in just two minutes. Their menus are updated weekly with 34 different options. You can choose your favorite meals or let Factor craft your order based on your taste preferences and meal history. So give Factor a try by heading to factor75.com and use the code legaleagle 50 to get 50% off your first Factor box or just click on the link that's on screen or down in the description and use the code legaleagle 50 and get 50% off your first factor box. After that, click on this box and over here for more legal eagle. Because here. as bad as your holiday season might have been, it wasn't nearly as bad as Rudy Giuliani's. Federal jury has ordered Rudy Giuliani to pay over $148 million to Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for falsely claiming they committed ballot fraud in the 2020 presidential election. To some people, Giuliani's fall from Grace has been a surprise. But it wasn't a shock to Rudy himself, though. In 2019, Giuliani was asked if, quote, saying things for Trump, not always being truthful about it, do you ever worry that this will be your legacy? And his answer was yes. Well, Rudy, don't get ahead of yourself because you can explain it to the bankruptcy court first because defamation claims are not always dischargeable in bankruptcy. And he's about to spend the rest of his life paying Moss and Freeman. So today we're gonna talk about the defamation case against Giuliani, his chances of getting the award reduced on appeal. And figure out how many cameos he has to sell to make 148 million dollars hi Devin. i'm calling to congratulate you on a quite an accomplishment and how much he's actually going to have to pay now as almost everyone knows by now joe biden legitimately beat donald trump in georgia ensuring that he received enough electoral votes to replace trump as president but manga world refused to believe that biden beat trump fair and square and trump and his allies quickly seized on two individual election staffers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss as the central villains in this plot against America. Moss and Freeman are mother and daughter board of election workers from Fulton County, Georgia, who helped count the votes on election day. And as they alleged on December 3rd, 2020, the Trump campaign published an edited video from a grainy security camera that showed unidentified persons, including individuals later identified as Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss, counting ballots. Now, this video became the basis of a conspiracy theory that Freeman and Moss were counting uh, suitcases full of fake ballots and uploading more fake ballots from thumb drives. Trump named the women in his infamous call with Brad Raffensperger. And Trump's allies also spread these false claims, but Rudy Giuliani was the most visible. Giuliani appeared on OAN day after day, claiming that Moss and Freeman were criminals. How about the videotape that I have where they're shoving the thing into the machine three and four times so that it can be recounted by the same two women that earlier in the day were passing around a hard, drive, hard drives or flash drives that supposedly can't be used in Dominion machines but can Right. And the complaint said that OAN, quote, leveraged Giuliani's unsupported factual assertions and almost immediately published them to millions of its viewers and readers, subsequently adding Ms. Freeman's and Ms. Moss's names and leveling additional accusations of criminal fraud against them. And it didn't take long for Georgia election officials to debunk Giuliani's assertions about Freeman and Moss. Quote, within 24 hours of Giuliani and the Trump campaign's original publication of these lies, Georgia election officials explained that the video contained, quote, no suitcases, no illegal ballot counting, no election fraud, a full hand recount of Georgia's election results had already confirmed the election results, and by December 7th, so would the recount requested by the Trump campaign. Through December and January, Georgia's Republican election officials continued to explain to the public again and again that thorough reviews had disproven defendants' false claims and proven that no illegal ballot counting had occurred. Giuliani and the Trump campaign were not deterred though. Giuliani subsequently testified at a hearing before the Georgia House of Representatives Government Affairs Committee, where he played the video and falsely claimed that it showed, quote, voter fraud right in front of people's eyes and was the tip of the iceberg. Giuliani also discussed Freeman and Moss on his podcast and Twitter account. Giuliani's media appearances and the tweets resulted in 33 million online impressions of Freeman alone. Trump's fans, who uh, were convinced Freeman and Moss were the ones standing in the way of his reelection, started showing up at their homes. On January 6, 2021, a crowd on foot and in vehicles surrounded Freeman's house. Her online boutique was flooded with threatening messages, including several that mentioned lynching shortly after Giuliani tweeted the video of her. She said, quote, I took it as though they were going to hang me with their ropes on my street. I was scared. I didn't know if they were coming to kill me. The complaint stated that Freeman was forced to shutter her online business when social media became impossible to navigate. Eventually Freeman, at the recommendation of the FBI, fled her home and did not return for two months. Moss testified before the January 6th committee about how something as innocuous as passing her mother a ginger mint had now been portrayed as her stealing a presidential election. In one of the videos we just watched, Mr. Giuliani accused you and your mother of passing some sort of USB drive to each other. Uh, What was your mom actually handing you on that video? a ginger mint. In other testimony, Freeman described how unsafe Giuliani and Trump's actions made her feel in her own community. I, I stayed away from my home for approximately two months. It was horrible. I felt homeless. I felt, you know, I can't believe, I can't believe this person has caused this much damage to me and my family. Um, to have to leave my home, that I've lived there for 21 years. Moss and Freeman said they received numerous death threats, but on at least two occasions, strangers showed up at her grandmother's home and attempted to push into the house in order to make a citizen's arrest. On these occasions, Miss Moss's grandmother, who was in her mid-70s, called her in a panic Uh, confused and scared for her safety. The Fulton County Board of Elections, quote, general email address would forward incoming emails to Ms. Moss and many of her colleagues, filling her workplace with harassing messages. So Moss and Freeman sued Giuliani OAN and the other defendants for defamation and intentional infliction of emotional distress. In most civil defamation trials, jurors first decide whether these statements made were defamatory. And if they were defamatory, then the jury then decides whether the person who made them intentionally inflicted emotional distress and whether they suffered damages. However, Giuliani chose the same defense strategy as Alex Jones when he was sued by the families of uh, the children killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, refusing to participate in the discovery process in good faith. Uh, Judge Beryl Howell entered a default judgment against Giuliani before the trial began, so the jury was told that Giuliani defamed Freeman and Moss and that the two women were also entitled to punitive damages. The trial was simply to determine how much Giuliani would have to pay. But that raises the question, why wouldn't Giuliani participate in the discovery process in good faith? Well, there are probably many reasons, uh, but some of the most important ones are Jack Smith and Donald Trump. Giuliani is already facing criminal charges for his participation in the scheme to submit fake electoral votes in Georgia. He's also described as an uncharged co-conspirator number one in Trump's indictment on federal charges in Washington for obstruction of the 2020 election. So if Giuliani meaningfully participated in discovery, it's likely that Smith would get to see everything that Giuliani produced in civil discovery process which could lead to giuliani being indicted in dc and on top of it this kind of discovery can get extremely expensive as well giuliani famously is going through money problems as well so much so that he asked for trump's help his ex-lawyer is suing him for 1.3 million dollars in unpaid legal fees and during an august hearing in another case his lawyer said rudy was close to broke and unable to pay a number of bills Apparently, making cameo videos for a Legal Eagle doesn't generate enough income to pay these huge legal bills. You're an ace attorney and a legal eagle, and I admire really good attorneys. Now, a Trump-affiliated PAC gave Giuliani three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and Trump held a one hundred thousand dollar ahead fundraiser for Giuliani last fall. But it's not clear how much of an impact that has made, given all of these legal fees. Now, this whole case has been marked by a couple of Giuliani's really dumb legal strategies. At one point, in an effort to stop the judge from ruling on the discovery issues, Giuliani filed a uh, stipulation purporting to admit liability. A stipulation is a binding agreement between opposing parties on a relevant issue in the case. Uh, Giuliani's stipulation said he quote, does not contest that his statements were false and carry meaning that is defamatory per se. He was also willing to offer that his statements met the factual elements of liability for Moss and Freeman's claims that his attacks amounted to intentional infliction of emotional distress and civil conspiracy. The idea being that Rudy would offer these stipulations in exchange for not actually having to produce discovery that would have led to those factual conclusions. But Rudy and Sibley seemed to bungle the stipulation because it included a disclaimer saying that he reserved the right to claim that his statements weren't defamatory after all on appeal. Sibley said that the stipulation wasn't an admission of liability. It was a decision not to contest the lawsuit. But as Judge Howell concluded, quote, Giuliani's stipulations hold more holes than Swiss cheese, with his latest stipulation expressly reserving his arguments that these statements complained of are protected and non-actionable opinion for purposes of appeal. She wrote that, Just as taking shortcuts to win an election carries risks, even potential criminal liability, bypassing the discovery process carries serious sanctions, no matter what reservations a non-compliant party may try artificially to preserve for appeal. Now, obviously, Rudy really would have benefited from a good lawyer during this whole process, but if you want a great lawyer, my firm, the Eagle team, can help. If you've suffered a data breach, especially if you've got a data breach letter, were involved in a car crash or dealt with sexual harassment, we can represent you or help find you the right attorney. It's important to talk to a lawyer right away so you can get the best representation and find out what your options are. So just click on the link in the description for a free consultation with my team, because you don't just need a legal team, you need the Eagle team. The link is down below. But it's also worth taking a quick look at Judge Howell's scathing opinion about Giuliani's conduct in this case. When a party is on notice that there will be litigation, they are required to preserve potentially relevant evidence, including electronically stored information, which is known as ESI. If a party fails to take steps to preserve ESI, quote, and it cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery, a court may order measures no greater than necessary to cure the prejudice. Uh, This misconduct, also known as spoliation, is the destruction or material alteration of evidence or the failure to preserve properly for another's use as evidence in pending or reasonably foreseeable litigation. Uh, Judges and lawyers take this kind of thing very seriously because if evidence is destroyed, then you have uh, a much harder time making your case. And believe me, we lawyers really enjoy going through your ESI, including your emails, because that's where all the juicy information is. So destruction of evidence is serious. So upon a finding that the party acted with the intent to deprive another party of the information's use in the litigation, a court is empowered to impose severe sanctions, including presuming that the lost information was unfavorable to the party, instructing the jury that it may or must presume the information was unfavorable to the party or dismissing the action or entering a default judgment. Uh, The judge here found that Giuliani should have preserved ESI as early as January of 2021 but did not take reasonable steps to preserve it and didn't even turn off the auto-delete until later that same year. Judge Howell pointed out that Giuliani isn't some regular guy who's never seen the inside of a courtroom and doesn't know anything about preserving evidence. Quote, the fact that Giuliani is a sophisticated litigant with a self-professed 50 years of experience in litigation, including serving as a US attorney for the Southern District of New York, only underscores his lackluster preservation efforts. Giuliani argued that the FBI was responsible for destroying the ESI, Uh, The FBI confiscated Giuliani's devices uh, because he's facing criminal charges. Quote, when the devices were finally returned to Giuliani, the Costello Declaration repeats Giuliani's assertion that all the devices had been wiped clean by the vendor for the government, uh, but without any verification of this fact uh, by any expert forensic examiner or even a professional information technology professional. And Judge Howell had reason to believe Giuliani acted intentionally. Plaintiffs obtained responsive documents produced by third parties, including Giuliani's assistants, which should have been turned over by Giuliani himself. Uh, in a footnote, the judge said, quote, Indeed, the House Select Committee released a December 13, 2020 email from Giuliani to Epstein, in which Giuliani approved a draft statement from the Trump legal team that stated, quote, Georgia has video evidence of 30,000 illegal ballots cast after the observers were removed referencing Giuliani's false claim about the plaintiffs. Yet Giuliani never produced that email to plaintiffs, nor as far as plaintiff's counsel can discern, did he ever claim privilege over it. And according to Judge Howell, the ESI has now been irretrievably lost. So why did that justify a default judgment? Well, because Giuliani's ESI was relevant to all of the plaintiff's claims. Giuliani argued that Ruby Freeman is a limited purpose public figure, which means uh, she would have had to show that Giuliani's statements about her were made with actual malice. That means Freeman would have to prove that Giuliani published false statements concerning her with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard about whether it was false or not. Uh, Quote, without access to circumstantial evidence of Giuliani's state of mind in the form of uh, his messages and email communications with associates or other contemporaneous records of his thoughts uh, when he made the false statements against Freeman, plaintiffs are severely hampered in being able to refute Giuliani's defense that he made his statements about Freeman merely negligently. The same was true of their other claims, intentional infliction of emotional distress and civil conspiracy. Judge Howell entered judgment against Giuliani as a discovery sanction and set a trial to determine damages. However, even after his discovery abuse, Judge Howell gave Rudy one last chance to avoid total disaster. Quote, As this case now heads to trial to determine any damages due to plaintiff's claims, Giuliani will be given a final opportunity to comply with discovery relevant to the determination of damages, both compensatory and punitive, or face imposition of additional discovery-related sanctions under Rule 37 in the form of adverse instructions and exclusion of evidence at trial. Now, Giuliani could have mitigated the amount of the damages owed to him if he produced evidence about his personal net worth and paid plaintiff's legal fees. But Giuliani chose not to, and by the time the case went to trial on damages, he had less ability to challenge the plaintiff's estimation of their damages. So what is Giuliani's net worth, and how much money can Rudy actually pay the two women he defamed? Well, we don't know. Uh, He didn't comply with Judge Howell's order to turn over information on his finances. During the trial, Giuliani's lawyer argued that he didn't have any money, but without admissible evidence to back that up, his arguments fell flat. Uh, The plaintiff's attorney, Michael Gottlieb, told jurors that Giuliani is still a celebrity who makes frequent media appearances and has a deal with right-wing network Newsmax. Quote, Giuliani profited from these lies. We don't know how much. So Gottlieb asked the jury to punish Giuliani with punitive damages. The plaintiff's expert witness, Ashley Humphreys of Northwestern University, estimated that they were entitled to $18 to $48 million to compensate for the loss of their reputations. That was the amount that she believed it would take to restore their images through a social media campaign. Uh, Humphreys cited the huge interest in online misinformation about them after Giuliani and Trump publicly accused them of sabotage. Uh, Gottlieb said that if Moss had been able to stay in her job as an election worker, which paid $39,000 a year, would have made about $800,000 over her lifetime. Now, interestingly, Giuliani initially said he would testify at trial, but his lawyer, uh, Joseph Sibley, changed his mind at the last minute saying, unbelievably, but accurately, quote, these two women have been through enough. And Sibley argued for compassion, admitting that Giuliani did an injustice to the plaintiffs, but that he was just a 79-year-old man who believes in conspiracy theories. Sibley repeatedly compared his client to a flat earther. Uh, And finally, he argued uh, during his closing that the jury should remember the time that Giuliani saved the city after 9-11. Sibley said his client was a unifying figure, not the broken old conspiracy theorist he is today. Quote, this is a man who did great things. If he hasn't been so great lately, I want you to judge him by his entire character of who he is. The jury seemingly did so and returned a verdict of $148 million. Freeman was awarded $16.1 million for the damage done to her reputation. Moss was awarded $16.9 million for the damage to her reputation. Each woman was awarded $20 million for the emotional distress caused by Giuliani's defamation. And finally, Giuliani was fined $75 million in punitive damages for defaming them. So will he have to pay all of that $148 million? Well, probably not, and certainly not anytime soon. Uh, he's probably going to appeal the verdict, but even an appeal won't provide him with uh, total help. Uh, there are some limitations on how big punitive damages wards can be, and they can't be too big of a multiple of the actual damages, uh, probably not more than a single digit multiplier. Uh, they also can't be too large a percentage of the defendant's net worth. Uh, in some cases, courts have said the punitives can't be more than 10% of their net worth. But even here, this argument runs into a major obstacle, Giuliani's discovery of use. Now, if a party refuses discovery into their own net worth and abuses the discovery process, they aren't allowed to appeal on the basis of the award being excessive in light of their net worth. And even if Giuliani got a good result from the court of appeals, such as completely wiping out all the punitive damages, he would still owe tens of millions of dollars. Now, generally a party who owes damages has 30 days before the judgment is enforced. However, Freeman and Moss filed a motion asking for the 30-day automatic stay to be dissolved because of the risk that Giuliani would use that time to conceal his assets. Judge Howell agreed and issued an order finding that Giuliani must immediately pay the $148 million. Judge Howell concluded that, quote, Giuliani has proven himself to be an unwilling and uncooperative litigant who blew off the court's discovery deadlines, didn't disclose his financial information, and ignored the court's orders to pay attorney's fees. Judge Howell said, quote, as plaintiffs submit and as Giuliani does not contest, Giuliani has numerous and mounting debts, including his own attorneys and other litigants seeking to reduce their claims to judgment. Now, despite these debts, uh, Judge Hal questioned whether Giuliani is really skint. Quote, uh, nowhere in opposition does Giuliani promise not to hide assets from plaintiffs, nor does he contend, let alone demonstrate with documentary or other proof that he would be unable to satisfy the judgment in whole or in part. She says he owns property in Florida and New York and appears to have accounts at several financial institutions. The order concludes that Giuliani is unlikely to succeed on appeal. And in yet more bad news for Rudy, the judge said she'll probably require him to post an appeal bond equivalent to the judgment if he wants to appeal. If he has to post a bond, it would be harder for him to draw down his assets. But of course, uh, later that same day, surprise, surprise, uh, Giuliani filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy. According to the filing, Giuliani's net worth is between one and 10 million, but he owes around uh, give or take 151,787,859.90 cents. Now that's including the Moss Freeman judgment, uh, $3.5 million to law firms, and $1 million in taxes. He anticipates owing money to Noel Dumfries, who uh, sued him for sexual harassment, Dominion, who sued him for defamation, and Hunter Biden, who sued Rudy for hacking his laptop. And he also owes an unstated amount to his own company, Giuliani Partners, and $30,000 for an unpaid phone bill. So naturally, this all leads to a question of bankruptcy. Now, a person can discharge some types of debts in bankruptcy, but intentional torts are often treated differently. Intentional torts involve actions where the wrongdoer intended to cause harm, such as battery or sometimes defamation. Section 523A of the United States Bankruptcy Code outlines the kinds of debts that are generally not dischargeable. Quote, a bankruptcy discharge releases the debtor from personal liability for certain specified types of debts. In other words, the debtor is no longer legally required to pay any debts that are discharged. Uh, Debts arising from willful and malicious injury to another person for their property are among the debts that may be non-dischargeable. Uh, for debt to be excluded from bankruptcy discharge, the debtor must prove that his actions weren't willful and malicious. But Giuliani would have a really hard time proving that, especially since he's now continued his defamatory attacks on Freeman and Moss. Yeah, Giuliani is now following the Trump blueprint of losing a defamation case by repeating the false claims and then being sued again by the same plaintiffs. Giuliani made several comments after the trial, including appearances on Newsmax and Steve Bannon's podcast, where he trashed the DC trial court and repeated allegations about plaintiffs. And... Inexplicably, he even went after Moss and Freeman on the courthouse steps after the verdict. That what I said was true, and that whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. So I guess I already need to make another video about his future defamation claims. In fact, there's so many claims that I can't release everything on YouTube. But thanks to the power of today's sponsor, Nebula, you can watch all my videos ad-free and early. Now, I'm not only on Nebula, but I'm also a co-owner because Nebula is a streaming platform built for creators by creators. And for the holidays, they are doing something completely wild. Nebula is offering until the end of the month, a lifetime membership. Instead of a subscription, it's a one-time payment that will get you everything Nebula offers forever. And for the first time ever, Nebula is also allowing people to buy gift cards so you can gift a lifetime subscription of Nebula to a friend or loved one. And I know tens of thousands of you signed up for Nebula using the CuriosityStream bundle, but unfortunately that is ending. CuriosityStream has informed us and even included in their latest SEC filing that they don't intend to pay us bundle revenue through 2024. This means that my creator friends and I won't get any money for bundle subscribers. So the bundle is breaking and you're not going to be able to have access to Nebula anymore after 2024 if you signed up with CuriosityStream. Maybe I'll make a video about that uh, soon. But if you'd like to support me and other educational creators, the only way to ensure that the money that you spend on Nebula goes to us directly is to sign up directly. So no, Nebula is not going bankrupt. On the contrary, it's more successful than it's ever been, but we're offering lifetime memberships for a select few fans so that we can make even more original content. Huge productions from your favorite creators like new seasons of Jetlag or Patrick Willems holiday special. Uh, and we're in it for the long haul. Lifetime memberships allow us to not take on outside investors. It's the opposite of a going out of business sale. It's a going into bigger business sale. And if you're new here, Nebula includes tons of exclusive videos from me, original series from your favorite people, movies, plays, classes, and more. With your favorites like Johnny Harris, Neo, Jetlag, Real Engineering, Real Life Lore, and Legal Eagle, we create the content that other people react to. But like I said, until the end of the month, you can get an exclusive lifetime membership. It's $300 for life, no tricks, no gimmicks, that's it forever. And if that's not your speed, that's completely fine. You can still get a 40% discount on yearly that pencils out to less than $3 per month. And if you wanna pay monthly, you have that option too. And now if you wanna share the love, you can gift a lifetime subscription to anyone else. So click on the link that's on screen right now or down below to get your lifetime membership or a huge 40% discount. Just click right now before the deal goes away. And after that, click on this link over here for more Legal Eagle, or I'll see you in court.